Hello and welcome back to the show. Today's episode is an excerpt of a long roundtable discussion on an open letter to open-minded progressives, the first major blog entry to Mensch's Moldbug's now-defunct Unqualified Reservations blog. Passage Publishing is going to be publishing the blog in its entirety in a multi-volume hardcover set, the first volume of which is available now at passage.press for $40. You can uh, find a link to the website in my show notes. We can go buy it and read along while you listen to this book club. This was an online book club with about 40 members in which we all read an open letter together. And then we discussed its legacy, its heritage, and some of the history and political philosophy that goes into it. We talk about uh, some of the major Protestant sects in America. We talk about the philosophy, the political philosophy of Carl Schmitt. And we also talk about some of the major themes and terminology, as well as the impact Moldbug had on today's political scene in 2023. And we ask the question, how important is neo-reaction and how important is neo-reaction to uh, politics in America today? We came to the conclusion that Mencius Moldbug is one of the most, if not the most political think- important political thinker of the 21st century. So Passage Press is going to be publishing the entirety of Moldbug's blog in its hardcover form, and I will be conducting read-alongs, book clubs online, along with Lomez and others, in order to read through the entirety of his blog and to talk about the major themes and the major ideas and terminology that Moldbug introduces to the political discourse. So if you enjoy what you hear now, follow the link in my show notes to my Substack, which is astroflight.substack.com. This episode in particular is itself almost five hours long. And the next episode, which is parts three and four, is also about four or five hours long, of which you'll find another one-hour excerpt later in the month on iTunes and Spotify. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, make sure you go become a subscriber and a paid subscriber to my Substack at astroflight.substack.com and go to Passage Press, passage.press, link in the show notes, buy the Unqualified Reservations hardcover copy and also buy the last couple of issues left of Passage Prize 2, Rewilding. It's selling out, and uh, it might not even last through the end of the month, so go take a look at that on the website. And uh, thanks for tuning in, and stay tuned for much more. The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shibats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the world who say you discover a build of God when you reach the side of the ocean. Hey, we're going to just hang out a minute because I started early and some of the people I expected aren't here. So hopefully they show up. But uh, yeah, this is the second of three discussions on the open letter for open-minded progressives. The first real blog entry from Moldbug's blog. Um, and it's like a, I don't know if you've, if you were here last week, <clears throat> it's kind of a rehash, but, um, it's a combination of like assessing the value of Moldbug's blog now 
considering it's been almost 20 years. It's been, I think it came out in 2007 or 8. So it's been like 15 years. So we want to see if he was right about things, if he's still worth like taking seriously, and if the things he said turned out to be not just true, but like, if his insight was uh, poignant enough to make him relevant. And my contention, and I definitely am interested in what people think about this, is he's uh, like probably one of the most important thinkers of our lifetime. And that the things he was saying and observing have come true in spades. And he did, he, he, he did kind of a combination of both predicting things and also um, making things happen. Like he called for things that are, are coming coming about. So something I was going to save until later at the end of the conversation, but since I started early, I'll start with it because it's not in the open letter. But he definitely like the, the two, if you, if you're interested in Moldbug's ideas, and you want to read him, but you don't want to read everything, I would definitely suggest the two places to start are first the open letter and then um, a gentle introduction. Because the gentle introduction, I think it only came a year later. It's like a, it's like a direct follow-up. It's like the two go together. And the first seems like it's building up to the second. I'm assuming that's how he did that on purpose. I don't, I don't really know. But it kind of kind of works as one big book in a way together. They're probably, I don't know. I could look it up, but together they're probably four or 500 pages long. Just those two posts. And one of the things he talks about in the gentle introduction is building parallel institutions. And I think it's important to understand what a parallel institution is because I think people might mistake what it is. Um, my opinion is that, like, Frog Twitter is a parallel institution. And that, uh, like, Passage Press, who's, who's obviously publishing <coughs> uh, Moldbug, and they're kind of, um, I, I mean, I guess I could say they're sponsoring this, this space in a way. Uh, the, the Passage Press and um, Lomez are promoting these spaces and I got to go on Orrin McIntyre with Lomez to promote the space which Orrin's always been cool to me but I've never been on a show before and I definitely think part of it was for him to help promote Passage so I felt super lucky because of that and I'm uh, I'm in good company here because I'm a total spurg and I've I think I spurged out a little too much on the show, but, uh, you know, I guess that's what you do when you're given a chance like that. So that was cool. And Oren, like, clearly loves Neo Reaction. Um, and I, I think Passage Press is, like, one of the most important things happening because I'm, like, really disillusioned with politics. I pretty much have been disillusioned with politics my entire life, but for a little while I had some optimism because of Trump. And, uh, like frog Twitter and BAP and all that stuff is great, but 
the system is just completely it's been totally captured by progressives and totally captured by like <laughs> like the CIA and the FBI and totally taken over and i think regular people have probably been permanently shut out of the political process at this point uh so i when it comes to like building parallel institutions like i don't i don't think we're going to have like conservative universities i don't want to get too much into this i'm kind of just doing filler until nine o'clock but we can definitely talk about this later in the show but uh i don't think you should think about parallel institutions as like conservative owned universities that teach like reactionary thought or uh you know conservative law firms that represent um um people like kyle rittenhouse pro bono i mean that stuff would be nice but i don't know how realistic it is uh i think a parallel institution and i had it you know it's taken me years to come to see it this way because you know Moblog wrote that in like 2008 like i said and to see the way things are playing out it's like no it's not like an actual institution rather it's like a a loose network and affiliation of people who if things were to disintegrate would sort of be there already standing and not disintegrate and then they become like the things that that do whatever it is they do so passage press Obviously, book publishing is like just completely in the shitter. It's just like not a thing anymore. I mean, book publishing was a massive cultural influence in America for a long time. And obviously in the West for arguably, arguably they were the most novels and and like book publishing and magazine publishing and periodicals were like the number one most important cultural influence for like most of the 19th and 20th century. I think they got eclipsed probably by movies in Hollywood, but even when that happened, they still stayed like a really important cultural force. And now you have things like man's world and passage press who are just picking up the ball. They're picking up the proverbial crown in the street and they are like without question, like the coolest thing happening right now. And I think some, like, political spurgs and, like, hard-right, like, political people think that it, like, doesn't matter. But I've come to the conclusion that it's actually, like, the most important thing. Which is why I've gone kind of all in for Moldbug. Uh, Even though, like, I don't think, you know, I'm not, like... You know, Curtis Jarvin's awesome, obviously, and he was cool enough to come on my show, but, like, there are other people that I think are, like, way cooler <laughs> and, like, just better. Like, Bap is the coolest guy. Bap is the best one. And other other much less popular, less influential people are, like, cooler than Moldbug. And they have, like, I don't want to say better ideas, but they, they have, like... Uh, how do I say this? Like your average, like low follower, two, three, four, five thousand follower, a non account on Twitter who posts about politics and makes shit posts probably has like a better, like 
more ideal like political perspective than Moldbug. But the thing about Moldbug, though, is that he has like a comprehensive system. That's the thing about him. Like even guys that I put with him, like Spandrel and Nick Land, who I like a lot. And in some ways, like I like I said, like I like those guys better. Like I like Nick Land better than Moldbug in certain ways. Like he's he's way better to read. I enjoy reading him way more. But he doesn't have like a comprehensive system. Spandrel is awesome. And the guy granted me an interview for my blog. And he was like one of the coolest people I've ever interviewed by far. Um, and he, we became friendly with each other, if not friends. And uh, the dude's great. But he's kind of like a footnote to a, a very necessary footnote. Like, a, like an indispensable footnote to Moldbug. And this isn't, like, I'm not denigrating him at all. I, I think he would agree. Um, and he's not nearly as prolific as Moldbug. And his, like, perspective isn't as far-reaching. But the point I'm trying to make is, like, none of these people are as comprehensive as Moldbug. And that's why I think he's worth spending this much time talking about. Um, Bap is probably just as comprehensive. But... Bap's different, and honestly, it probably would be good to compare and contrast the two, actually, because they both kind of have, like, there's overlap, for sure, and if you listen to Caribbean Rhythms, I don't really need to say too much. I mean, Bap, Bap talks about Yarvin enough on his show in a couple episodes that you can kind of, like, see where the differences and the overlap are. I, I, guess, I guess I could say Bap is comprehensive, but Bap has a podcast, and it's like, kind of a variety show, whereas Moldbug is, like, meticulously laying out a system and a thesis and a comprehensive worldview and a system of thought that he brings full circle and he's, like, reinforcing over time with, like, more examples and he's, like, refining it here and there. And that's why I think he's, like, worthy of this much attention. So, okay, it's after nine and, uh... Few of the people are here that I was expecting to come so we could get a real conversation going. And then people can request the mic. But yeah, so that's my point about Moldbug. He has a comprehensive system of thought. It's pretty far-ranging. Uh, it's pretty influential. It's, it's extremely influential. And it um, he pre-figured or preempted or predicted a lot of things that... The example I like to give is that he was talking about South Africa and the murder of farmers and the reappropriation of their land before anyone even knew it was happening. Um, and he, he, uh, he, he leaves enough vagary that like th that, and this is actually a strength of his. Some people don't like this. He leaves enough vagary that like his ideas can like take shape in reality because to transplant an idea from paper into the real world there's oh it's always going to be messy a messy process it's always going to like come with it like well there's it always at least runs the risk of like being a letdown or not being like living up to like the ideals you put down so the fact that he's vague is actually a strength i mean he's not vague but he's not like overly prescriptive which i think is a strength 
So when he he says parallel institutions, like you might think uh, an actual like conservative Harvard, but or or, or or somewhere he talks about the antiversity, which I thought was in this. If somebody can give the citation, I can't remember where that was. I, mean, I think it's in this one. <laughs> and he's talking about like people like us finding PDFs of old books that have been out of print for a hundred years that are like hardcore reactionary thinkers that no one talks about anymore because they, you know, they lost world war two. Um, so that is like the parallel institution that we're building. It's like a whole movement of thought based on wrong think of thinkers that were purposefully like thrown in the dustbin of history like by communists that the internet has like brought about. So, I mean, I could go on, but some of the speakers I was waiting for are here. So I want, uh, today we're going to talk at least about a couple ideas, if not the whole thing of chapter four through nine. I have a couple specific talking points I want to bring up. And, um, I assume other people have other ideas or other observations too. So Adrian Appalachian and Taurus are here. Dallas is here. And then grill. I know you weren't in the reading group, but you've, you could take the mic back if you get the chance. I know you've read Moldbug and you have interesting things to say. And then after we, um, kind of get through some of the main talking points, we'll, we'll open it up. So Adrian Appalachian Taurus, do you guys have any opening remarks? Uh, It doesn't have to go off of anything I just said. I was kind of just filling space until the, the official time lot started. I can chime in real quick before we, uh, we start formally. So I like this topic um, because this is usually the one that I think breaks in normies the most easily. Um, I find that when I have to make a defense of Molbug, especially to people that claim that they don't like him for one reason or another. And one of the big ones that they always bring up is uh, his reliance on the accuracy of documents from the past and he does do that a lot where he's like which i understand like the guiding telos behind it the notion like uh we don't want to judge the past by our standards right now we want to imagine how would our ancestors judge how we are today and he believes that there is a, you have a very reasonable and very accurate understanding of the past from um from the historical record, which I have a plenty of friends that do not agree with that and think that the past is, uh, if anything, a, a mystery. The further you go back, a game of telephone where there's less and less information. So um, when people come at me, it's like, well, you know, uh, Mobug's an idiot for, for believing that. It's like, well, I mean, if you're able to, like, understand the structure that he's building, it's like he has an entire system for understanding how he interprets information. And if you can get that point across of what the cathedral is and what emergent uh, forms of power structures are, it guides its way into how he understands the way the past is, is written about and which groups of people wrote about the past and why you can have a reasonable understanding of it and even, um, and even be able to believe uh, some sources versus others because of that. Um, So, yeah, I think that's a, that's where I'll start off and, hear what everyone else has to say about cathedral yeah i mean dude he has a quote from ernst von solomon in here and this was 2007 and i i don't know who the fuck even would have known who that guy was i mean i don't think i ever heard of him until bat brought him up on his podcast 
So, <coughs> and the quote was about denazification, which is like something we all have heard of and know what it was. Like, I mean, like even back in normie days, like from, you know, grade school where they taught you about World War II. But to read a quote from Ernst von Solomon and knowing that he was putting this on his blog, like literally during like the, the first year of Obama is like just the fact that he was doing stuff like that and talking about South Africa, you really have to wonder like how much was he like prefiguring everything that came and how much was he, uh, the reason why this stuff came about in the near future. Um, now Lomez isn't here, but he made it last week. If anybody wasn't here, uh, you know, I guess there was a whole, uh, little contingent of, of people who like weren't even necessarily re relegated to only being online back then because, uh, Steve Saylor was writing and I think he was being published. Was it the national review? Somebody that's now like banned from banished from every mainstream publication who is on Twitter was in the national review at one point and, and lost his job there. I think it was Steve Saylor, but somebody can correct me on that. The point is, is these guys were all like already being like kicked out of like mainstream. And, you know, I'm sure I think I said this last week, like or somewhere I said that the neocons have done more damage to like true conservative in America than any liberal ever has. Uh, and I really think that they're a huge part of why uh, guys like Moldbug, Steve Saylor, obviously Pat Buchanan other big figures from back then ended up in a no man's land of the internet, which isn't a no man's land anymore, but it was at the time. Like Twitter wasn't as big back then. Twitter existed, but it wasn't as big back then. 4chan. I don't even know if 4chan existed. I don't even know when 4chan started, but it, it wasn't as big. None of this stuff was as big. Facebook wasn't taken over by like the MAGA boomers at the time. So you couldn't really go anywhere <coughs> to read about Ernst von Solomon. You know, you had to go to, to blogs, basically. Um, and 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 even if Moldbug wasn't alone back then, I mean, I'm not a historian of this stuff. I'm not the guy to talk to. Lomez was was reading all these guys back then. He can he can drop more names than me. Uh, but my point is, is that even if he wasn't alone, he's the one who has staying power. He's the one who's picked up steam and kept it going and is now like famous. I mean, dude. I recently learned that James Pogue's two articles combined are the most read, taken as one article, which they're really kind of part one and part two. But uh, the two articles combined by James Pogue for Vanity Fair are the is the most read thing Condi Nast ever published. And the first half was about Moldbug and Yarvin. So think about that. The most popular thing Condi Nast, not Vanity Fair, but the company that owns Vanity Fair and, you know, 10 other huge magazines uh, the most popular thing they ever published online was half about Moldbug so he's the guy, you know, who, who kept it going um, so that's that, his legacy, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to like, argue his legacy but I do like to point it out uh, does anybody else have to ha have anything they want to say? Uh, we can we can basically just get get it going. I don't 
you know, we could just take my random ramblings as the <laughs> the opening statement. I do have something to say about the cathedral, but I'll, I'll wait until other people go. Yeah, we, we don't have to okay, use hands. Yeah. We're all familiar with each right. other at this point, yeah. Well, yeah, I'll just jump in and say something uh, briefly. Uh, and, you know, you brought up VAP and kind of a comparison. One thing that comes to mind that I think is in common between the two is that they both are really kind of teaching you a entirely different way of seeing almost everything. You know, there's this there's this component to the rhetoric of Moldbug. You know, of course, the red pill analogy and everything, but where he's he's kind of gently guiding you along and saying this is going to hurt a little bit because of the shock of how different this is going to be. But bear with me, and let's take it slowly. And there is this way of looking at the world that, you know, an actual uh, legitimate ruler would take this kind of perspective. And this way of looking at history, and we were talking in the chat a while ago about this idea that, um, you know, there's some thinkers who are mostly concerned with particulars, you know, a lot of historians and stuff. Um, and there's some much more philosophically minded thinkers, and I think Moldbug, and I think Bap too are among them, uh, where they really have like just kind of a key, almost spiritual kind of point, like a way of being almost that they're trying to teach you. Uh, and all of the examples and the historical examples and Bap's, you know, incredibly prodigious amount of knowledge about Hellenism and everything. Um, is all just sort of subservient to this purpose. And so it's like, if you, you know, if you learn from someone more knowledgeable than Moldbug, for instance, um, about British history or something, that he had something like pretty wrong, it wouldn't matter too much. You know, it'd be interesting. It'd be worth talking about. But it wouldn't like really damage the theory because it's like, okay, well, let's find another example would be kind of the response. And so, yeah, anyways, that, that's just something I wanted to throw out there that what, like, to me, like, what the purpose of the entire kind of operation of this book is, is to leave you with um, something that you, it's just like a feeling and it's a different way, a different kind of posture toward uh, kind of the entire history of the world. Yeah, and I definitely think it was effective and I definitely think he was trying to both recruit i don't want to say liberals but i guess we'll just say normies he he wanted to recruit see one of the things i like to say is that like i'm the living embodiment of horseshoe politics i started like pretty far left and now i'm pretty far right uh but you know i didn't jump even though i know that's the idea of horseshoe as you jump from one to the other i i kind of ran the continuum from one all the way to the other and I had a phase for sure of being like what I call vaguely liberal, which was uh, the pe a period of time where I was like totally checked out from politics at all. Um, but if you ask me what I thought about something, I would give you some like sort of hand waving dismissal answer that ended up on the liberal side, like immigration, like, Oh yeah, it's fine. You know, what's the big deal? I don't know. Immigration's fine. Nothing, nothing's, nothing's happening with immigration. So so yeah, let them come, whatever. 
And it's because I never thought about it. I never looked at it. I never paid attention. I didn't have any effect on me. I didn't watch the news for a long time. And I think that that is like the majority of the country, actually. Like most NPC slash normies, that's how they are. And I think the reason why what you're saying is true, Taurus, the reason I agree with you and the reason why it's effective <coughs> is because Moldbug is talking to them and he's addressing the things that a normal person will have come across in their life. Not a news junkie. He's not talking to news junkies. He's not even talking to like people who casually read like online politics. He's talking to somebody like me who never watched cable news. But if I was going to get some cable, like going to get some like news of the day, it would because I in passing happened to like absorb 15 minutes of the news twice a week, which of course was going to be like super liberal. Plus I had the foundation, like the conceptual framework of understanding the world from my upbringing, which was like a progressive institution. Like, like, I'll say a little bit more about this later, but like our educational institution is a progressive institution in the sense that it was conceptualized, invented, and implemented by actual dyed-in-the-wool progressives like John Dewey, who was in who was like a like the epitome of progressivism. Um and other guys. So when he talks about the founding. And when he talks about the revolution, he talks about a lot in the gentle introduction as well. He's talking about it in terms of like how you probably understand it as a vaguely liberal normie, which is that like the revolution was good. Monarchy is bad. And we won because we're the good guys. And that's like all you need to be able to read this. And like, I think he's effectively like captured those people's attention and change their minds. You know what I mean? Like my story of like going from like being on the left to being apathetic to being vaguely liberal to being right wing definitely has Moldbug like front and center of that story of like Donald Trump got elected. I was like, huh, everybody's saying this guy is terrible. But every time I hear him talk, I kind of agree with him. I should look more in to like what he's saying and what he's about and like the people who follow him. And the first person I found when I did that was Moldbug. So, like, you know, God only knows how many other people that's true for. Thousands, you know. I, I could go on, but uh, Adrian had his hand up. Go ahead, buddy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was going to supplement that a little bit. It's interesting looking at, because we have to ask the question when you're reading this, is where did this come from? I mean, no one else was really thinking this way at the time. And I, I know if you read through the introduction, um, Molbug makes it pretty clear, like he kind of found it by way of libertarianism. And I think the fact that he was kind of a word cell then well, word cell slash, you know, tech guy that was also reading a lot of supplemental information and seemed to obsess over going through all this old stuff. And he kind of created something that didn't really exist before, at least not in the wider culture in any form. And I do identify with your story on, on a bunch of levels, because I mean, growing up, I mean, I was a kid that, you know, you believed in liberal ideas because that was the right thing to believe in, especially when I was in high school. I mean, like I was a kid that was, uh, you know, really upset when I saw the invasion of Iraq. I, you know, all of my friends and I at the time, uh, you know, you had like the Buck Fush, uh, you know, pins and listening to your, you know, your rock music and being pissed about it. Uh, you know, I was sort of by the time that uh, 
Occupy Wall Street happened, I was kind of checked out, like total apathy, and then kind of found my way. I think I talked about this last time through, um, like, I would say social Darwinist literature via, like, gothic music, stuff like Death in June, stuff like Boyd Rice. And then it wasn't until Mulbug when I started reading uh, Unqualified Reservations, where it was like, this is an actual teleological system that describes all of these ideas that, you know, something you know that something's vaguely wrong with the world, but you can't really put your finger on it. And you know that there's got to be something that describes what's a better way to, to go about it. But it's hard because there's so many different people saying all these different things. There's all these old writers, all these new writers. But Molbug identified something that I think was very powerful at the time for me because he was the first person to put it into a language that made sense to me. Um, and then I, if we not jumping too far ahead, but what I uh, also noticed, like you were talking about the education system. He mentions that uh, with the, the Darwin section later on about this idea of like mimetically seeding the population and how, uh, you know, the, the members of the cathedral, the, the powers that be, they, they do this in seeding children with these ideas. So you grow up and it's just like the effortless thing. You don't have to be engaged in politics to have political thinking, even if you're apathetic, because we all grew up in the, in the education system. We all were indoctrinated the same way. Anybody who went through the school system, well, even if you went to a private school, you got hit by it in some form. Uh, and then his also proposing like a means of counteracting that using memetics as well is pretty fascinating. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and jump into the next section yet. All right. Yeah. So, right. Um, OK, so I did have some opening comments to like introduce introduce the cathedral. I wanted to talk today about first the cathedral and then progressivism as both power politics and uh, a religion, like the continuation of Protestantism. But uh, I wanted Appalachian to have a chance to make some opening remarks before I, I gave my kind of statement. Yeah, thanks, Astral. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's one just sort of general thing I wanted to say before we uh, really got into this is that, uh, so we're, we're talking about chapters four through nine tonight. Uh, and I think that, this specific section is really a, an important shift in um, uh, open letter because um, you you go from Moldbug's analysis to um, into chapter nine. You really get into more like solutions, more um, concrete plans, and that that's kind of big because when you're when you're tearing things down, you know when you're taking down some some powerful enemy everyone's a friend you know and i, I think Moldbug's analysis is just beyond reproach it's I, I think it's perfect but his solutions are like pretty good you know uh and, and this is i think why the left is such a powerful coalition because for them it's never time to start building something it's just tear things down until the lights turn off so it, it's in, something that's going to be you know, God willing, hard for the right to navigate someday if we get there. Um, so that, that's just, yeah, that's that's really what my favorite parts are probably chapters eight and, and before. But uh, it's still it's still really interesting to read good thought about what might be done um, once you've identified the problems, as, as I think he does well. So, yeah, in terms of solutions yes uh it's really the last i guess it's i think there's 14 chapters so it's like 10 through 14 he talks about uh how 
there might be a transition from the system we have now to the system he envisions. And it, you know, it's, it's realistic enough to consider is all I'll say. And nothing about him, except for he does throw a few things out here that are like full blown sci-fi, but most of what he says is so based in reality and the possible that it's worth considering a lot of people on the right and frankly on the left too, but it's a, it's a little different uh, because the left has like been getting their way for so long that it's at the point where it's like the most extreme, crazy left wing ideas are like at this point, like possible. But I don't want to talk about that. Uh, that's not exactly true. But on the right, a lot of people, I see a lot of talk about like how things sh- quote unquote should be that are just never going to happen. And I, I just don't have the time for like playing your fantasy Dungeons and Dragons version of like what the world should look like because it's never going to look like that. Um, and the whole accelerationist thing is like, yeah, if you're vision of utopia is literally the world exactly what it was like in 1950 then like you're going to be severely disappointed uh but and people get super angry i think part of the reason people get so angry is that uh it disabuses them like the neo-reaction and accelerationism like disabuse i hate using buzzwords but it disabuses them of like their fantasy realm that they've like used as a way to cope with things in the real world being bad and not working out for them and not being in their favor. Uh, and, you know, Yarvin said on my podcast that a doomer is just an optimist with a longer time frame, which is like exactly right. Like, like long term, things might potentially look a little bit more optimistic than they look in the next 10 years or, you know, by the end of the decade. That's another conversation, but but if you understand Moldbug's working on that time frame, then you understand that he's not like he's not a cop out, he's not a cope, he's not a doomer. He's saying like, and here's the thing about accelerationism: like, if it takes a generation or two to like for the world to get to a position where our ideas can like actually like start making a difference in reality a lot of bad things are going to happen between now and then if that's how long it takes um first of all we might not have that much time that's a different conversation and second of all if it does take that long between now and then many bad things are going to happen and you have to kind of just like prepare for them and like figure out a way to deal with it because there's nothing you can do instantly Like, you know, if they stole the last election, I'm expecting that they're going to steal this election. That's that's how I feel about it. And if we don't get somebody like pretty much Trump himself in, then a lot of the worst like abuses of the left are are going to get worse. Um, I'm getting a little bit too far off the topic, but I'm trying to make the argument that for Moldbug to argue that we have to make right wing politics cool again and we have to reach like young people and we have to like do like right-wing punk rock those things like the reverberations of those things are felt over long periods of time like 
like I like to think of it at least one generation, you know, like the things the beats did that take place in their books happened in the 40s. They didn't write about them until the 50s and they didn't really change the culture until the 60s. And that's not a value judgment on the beats. I'm just telling you that that's how things work. That's how things play out. That's how long this kind of shit takes is what I'm saying. Um, you know, everyone knows punk rock started in the 70s, but it was like underground for the most part. It was like CBGBs. But in the 80s, it was like a national phenomenon. Uh, and by the 90s, it was so huge, it like had gone fully mainstream and turned into like pop music, basically. Again, both scenarios just took that I'm talking about took 30 years. Um, so if that's what Moldbug is saying we have to do, then you have to like you have to like have a much longer time frame. Um, I, there's so much more to say about that. I almost regret dropping all that before I change tack and make my point that's specific to the reading. Um, but, you know, at this point, I'm thinking about it, that the cathedral is such a the concept of the cathedral is so in the parlance of like political Twitter and the right. that I almost think I want to like open this up to a general discussion. The con the idea was being like the reading group members talk first and then everybody else can come in. But now that I'm about to like actually dive into the material I had planned, um, I think, I think I'm just going to let people request. If you want to talk about the cathedral, just request because Everybody knows what it is. People people are familiar with it. And I want to talk about it in these terms. Um, the cathedral, the first time I read Moldbug, I wasn't ready for some of like the really far right uh, ideas in here. Um, the idea that the post-colonial world order is bad and worse than the colonial world order. A lot of that stuff went over my head. The The, the stuff that like what the progressives and the left believe and want now was already kind of baked into Protestantism in the, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, that kind of went over my head. It kind of, my eyes glazed over, glazed over. And I actually like skipped to the end of two or three chapters, like chapter four and five, I think without even finishing them the first time, this was around 2015, 2016. But the concept of the cathedral, like perfectly made sense to me. And I actually, thought at the time because i didn't my my critique of the left was not as sophisticated as it, as it is now I, I definitely was fed up with them and i abandoned them since for similar reasons and more that adrian was talking about like by the end of occupy wall street it just became clear that these were not serious people that they were very easily bought off by being pandered to by the democrats uh, any serious issues that they had that I agreed with, they weren't really committed to. Um, culture war stuff was more important to them. Uh, ha half, you know, the ranks of the left were swollen uh, by millions of people when Obama came around. And, you know, those of us who were a bit older, I, and I was certainly radicalized by the George W. Bush administration and, and, uh, 9-11 and I was definitely watching Alex Jones back then and we all knew the CIA was behind 9-11 and Obama, uh, Osama bin Laden was working for <coughs> the CIA or whatever. 
And then Obama comes along and it was kind of like, okay, well, this is more of the same. Like he's one of their guys. They're like installing this guy. But so many people bought it and seal clapped for it <coughs> that I sort of like walked away like, okay, these, these people aren't serious. They, they'll, they'll go for any, you know, black dude with that can palm a basketball that can speak well that they throw up on TV. So I walked away. But my critique of the left wasn't like comprehensive. I didn't develop that for a while. I just kind of stopped caring about it. So the first time I read Moldbug in like 2015, 16, I kind of was like, okay, I see where this guy's going. He's like rehash Chomsky. This is like manufacturing consent all over again. He even brings up Walter Lippmann and Chomsky in the book. So I actually didn't finish the blog. I was like, okay, I get it. I've heard this before, like whatever. But this time going through it, I actually revisited Chomsky. I watched the Manufacturing Consent documentary. And it was a very worthy, uh, it was a very worthy uh, thing to do, a uh, little experiment. Highly recommend anybody who has two and a half hours to watch the Noam Chomsky documentary, Manufacturing Consent, with a critical eye, of course. I mean, I totally reject his fundamental misunderstanding of human nature he he's a he's a radical democrat he's an anarcho-syndicalist who is like basically a like a more pure version of communism than communism is because communism requires a vanguard and a, a a bureaucratic kind of elite to help lead the revolution and then take over the state so that the state can like restabilize itself after the revolution takes over and then of course those people, the, the anarchist critique of communism is those people will hold on to power. Um, they won't like give it over to the proletariat and then they'll form uh, a, just as a totalitarian autocratic regime as the one they tried to replace, if not worse. Um, so that's the anarcho syndicalists. They're like, get rid of that contingent of people and give everything directly to the workers. And Chomsky's uh, analysis of the media is sort of based on that understanding of democracy, which is that, and this is like something I totally and completely reject, but his whole thing is like manufacturing consent is the idea based on Walter Lippmann, who says that like the average person doesn't really have the time or the mental capacity to like, figure out how the world works to, to understand how politics work, to understand like the intricate detailed, complicated interrelationship between economics, politics and geopolitical slash military uh, issues at stake. Uh, they just don't have the time to analyze it and really become informed voters. So you basically need, and Walter Lippmann, whose book, I think it's called public opinion manufacturing consent was based on, his argument was like, you need this like new class of people to do that for the people and like repackage these things and give it to the people so they can have form like a, a basic understanding of how all these things work. <clears throat> and then they can use that to participate in democracy. And that picture that they're given and this new class that he's talking about is uh, the journalists. That's their job. That's what they're supposed to do. And then Chomsky comes along and says, no, that's that's bad. That is what's happening, but it's not a good thing. And he's got this like capitalistic 
analysis of it where he basically says that like the media exists to create the goalpost or they create the uh, Overton window and then they they only talk inside the Overton window and um, the people to farthest to the left of that Overton window are actually like far farther to the right than actual leftist politics and the people to the right in that Overton window are, you know, the same thing, less, less far to the right. Um, and what it does is create this like illusion of like, uh, of like, uh, debate and, 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 and like, a, like an active marketplace of ideas, but really, and, and it seems like they're like by having Fox news and having CNN and MBIT and MSNBC, it seems like they're covering the full political spectrum and like, encouraging this flourishing like political debate but really what they're doing is they're limiting political debate and they're keeping your th brain within the context and the framework of these limited <coughs> excuse me goalposts and the reason and i'm getting to mold bug this is all very actually very important having watched this video i now see that this is actually really important for understanding what mold bug is doing with the cathedral uh so bear with me just for another minute Chomsky's argument is that the reason why, like the way they pick the goalposts and the way they like construct the Overton window where on the political spectrum it is, is because it benefits the elite and that the media that we get is delivered to us in between commercials and it's delivered to us in the paper in between advertisements. And the advertisements are, are for like targeted towards like more upper class bourgeois people. So they don't want to create a picture of the world that like offends the upper class bourgeois, you know, newspaper readers because they want to keep them buying newspapers and they want to keep them buying the products that are being advertised in the newspapers. So of course, like the the boogeyman here is of course capitalism. And I reject this on multiple fronts. Now, Chomsky actually does say some things I agree with. But they're not worth getting into because they're not really related to Moldbug. What Moldbug does is he basically agrees with uh, both Lippmann and Chomsky, but he takes it another direction than Chomsky. And he says that, no, of course, this like limited window of discussion isn't about selling products and the advertisers in there. It's about like re-establishing, re-entrenching, and building power for the progressives. Because the ideas that are discussed within the Overton window, they're not just the ideas that like reinforce and 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 garner popular support for the Department of State and their uh you know overseas foreign policy interventionism and things like that, which is what Chomsky says, and which is true. Uh however the cathedral, as Moldbug understands it, is actually like the university system and the press kind of working in tandem and think tanks like 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 NGO think tanks and, um, uh, you know, uh, institutions that are funded by different political operatives or different political politically interested um, foundations that have an agenda and that these are the people that like create I, I don't know what to call it the Overton window I guess we'll stick with that term and that 
they don't do it like to perpetuate like the class system. They do it to perpetuate their own power and they do it to create more progressives. They do it to create more people who think like they do so that they can create more people to help run the institutions. And that the reason why progressivism like continues to, to remain in power and grow and gain power over time is because they have set up these institutions in such a way that they're like self-perpetuating and like they accumulate more people. Uh, now, one of the things in the manufacturing consent uh, documentary is like people accuse Chomsky of saying there's like a conspiracy that like the State Department is like, you know, feeding these stories to the New York Times and the New York Times is sitting around uh, the boardroom and saying like, well, we can't report on this because it goes against what the State Department says. Uh, and Chomsky and Moldbug both say like, no, it doesn't work like that. Like, it, it, it's just that like, you're more likely to get the job at the New York Times if you like genuflect to the altar of progressivism. If you believe the things, if you get your information from all the same sources and you believe the things that these people uh uh, propagate in their in the press, then you're more likely to get the job and keep the job and be able to stay there, continuing to propagate these ideas. And it's sort of like this like homeostatic feedback loop that, of course, the whole Cthulhu swims left, like the leftward drift that he talks about. Like, of course, it's going to go further and further left because the more you hire these types of people and the more progressivism like picks up steam the farther they're going to push the Overton window to the left and you're going to end up with like the Bud Light lady who gets hired to like save the company. But because she's such a dyed in the wool progressive and she's got it like in her bones, progressivism is like baked into like the fabric of her being that the most logical thing for her, of course, is to put a tranny on like the working man's beer can. Um, and, and like that's like the that's like what progressivism leads to. So I personally think that like the people, of the, the, the progressives of the early 20th century were looking at like, and this of course is like right after World War I and right after Woodrow Wilson's administration. So like they won, you know what I'm saying? Like they took over, they were in power and they came up with ideas for how to run the state that would keep themselves in power. That's one of the things Moldbug says in these passages somewhere. He talks about how uh, the 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 conservatives like get power, and they're like, "Oh, I want to uh, I want to change like this policy and that policy," and they change this policy and that policy, and then they get voted out of power, and then the press have come and like totally obliterate what they did, and they go it goes back to the, uh, you know same as it ever was. Whereas the progressives, when they get power, the first thing they do is working on shoring up their power and making sure that it's going to be perpetuated. They're going to entrench themselves and set things up in such a way that they're going to continue to have power. So you have this, this guy Lippmann who was a big deal at the time because John Dewey, who helped design our education system and helped design, you know, the Dewey decimal system. <laughs> I actually can't remember if that's the same Dewey. I think that might be two different Deweys, but I kind of said that as a joke. Anyway, this is my last point though. My point is, is that this guy was, this, this book, Public Opinion, wasn't some obscure text. It was a book that the people who were literally designing like the American progressive institutions were reading and responding to. Um, 
he said what we need to do is create this like new what Moldbug calls Brahmin class of journalists who feed the the demos information in such a way that it causes them to vote for things in the way that like we want them to vote for things conscientiously. They were conscientiously doing that. Um, so Chomsky comes along and rejects that and comes up with like a new thing and says that like, no, it's like the state department and it's capitalism. And Moldbug comes along and says, no, actually like Lippmann, what Lippmann was doing is like the fundamental nature of progressivism. And the reason he did it that way was not to like push certain like programs and not to push like specific policy points, but rather it was to like build the foundation for progressivism so that progressivism remained like the ideological framework of the American like democratic system for as long as possible. And that's what the cathedral is. <laughs> if that makes any sense, like that's what the cathedral is. The cathedral is the, the foundations of progressivism perpetuating themselves through the university systems, because he, he says like, who's further to the left, Yale or Harvard. It's a, it's a ridiculous question unworthy of an answer. So the cathedral then is this edifice of progressivism um, setting up institutions in such a way to make sure that they remain progressive. So I'd like to hear other people characterize the cathedral however they'd like to characterize it uh, and refute me if I'm wrong. All right. Somebody else has got to talk, though. I can't. Uh, I can't be the only one talking. I can. Uh, I can take a shot. So, I just like. Um, I, I we kind of touched on this last time about how we've sort of moved from uh, an order that was more decentralized to one that today, um, like it, it almost seems uh, it's more tempting to accuse people of open collusion of the type that, that Lippmann, Lippmann was doing, whereas Moldbug is very clear that it's decentralized and there's no structure, but then like, you know, if you read the Twitter files um, it definitely seems like more of a conspiracy um, and one of the things I think like is different between the, you know, post-World War One era that you're talking about and today is that at least maybe, you know up until every, everything after Trump changed because you know, there's the circling of the wagons that we talked about in the Twitter files, etc. But uh, in, a, in a large way, the, the result of, of that sort of um, you know, educational vanguard that Lippmann called for is the fact that uh, today progressivism is almost a, a culture that was created out of, uh, you know, thin air. Not really. I mean, it comes from, you know, Puritanism, but um, less of a... Um, it was almost a, a culture that was designed to have the qualities you're talking about, where they, they you know, take power for themselves and do things that that uh, result in them having more powerful, more, more power. But if you, especially if you grew up outside of you know coastal centers and then you interact with them, you realize like, oh, this is just this very idiosyncratic culture that doesn't realize it's like 
you know, idiosyncratic. And the, these beliefs, which to them seem obvious, like, oh, you know, just, just be a good person, just do this or that. It's like 99% of the world thinks you're super weird for thinking that. And it's like your specific culture. So it almost doesn't need any sort of explanation today other than that. It's just, you know, a very strange culture that that is, is in and around uh, coastal urban white people. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I don't think that's in Moldbug, the part about coastal urban white people. Maybe it is, though. But this is his, like, uh, the way L- he stuff white people like tribe is the way he, and I, re- I really like that. Oh, yeah, 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 I forgot about that. I didn't mean to say it's not in Moldbug. I meant to say I don't know if it's in the open letter. What I was going to say was this is the, uh, elf hobbit thing, right? Like, it's yeah. not just like there's elves and hobbits and that's a static thing and that's how it is. It's like, no, the hobbits move to the city to become elves. That's why I love, I think it's the bureaucrat who calls, uh, calls them disappoint. Uh, what does he call them? Uh, embarrassed yokels. A lot of liberals in the cities are like, uh, you know, provincial people who are like embarrassed of where they come from because they're, you know, they come from like MAGA country. You know, these people see themselves as like temporarily embarrassed hobbits who move to the cities to become elves, to like basically participate in groupthink and become progressives. So, of course, like it's like gone global now. You know, these these institutions are bringing and this is why the things drift left. And he talks about drifting left here. He's saying, like, why why do these things drift left? And, you know, I'm not sure he gives he gives a good explanation, but I'm not sure he doesn't use the terms I'm talking about. Like if if you're creating this, like come to our coastal elite institutions to be indoctrinated into progressivist thought, if you're going to uh, advertise this to people from like other countries and and all over the world, like they're going to come and the progressivist thought is going to be for them. So then you're going to include all these people who have like totally different priorities than like, and they become voters. You know, if they if they if they move here, become citizens, they become voters. And they have totally different priorities, but they have totally different priorities than like the average white American, but. They are, of course, like further entrenching like the progressive juggernaut um, and 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 forwarding the progressive agenda. So in terms of like the cathedral, this is the best possible thing that can happen uh, because it kind of has to like further go further and further and further outside of like the stock American to, uh, you know, spectrum in order to like keep finding fodder to like feed into their ever grinding like leftward you know juggernaut and look what ha- look what's happening in Scotland and England you have like muslims and hindu indian people from pakistan and india who are like the conversation is about like they're white people too like that's how like absurd this gets i think that my issue um some of what Moldbug classifies, right? And I and Astral, I, your last point touches on this nicely. There's a segment of the cathedral 
that was raised in this ideological ethos, right? That are true believers that, that truly believe in, um, the, you know, oppressing people with compassion, um, that espousing comfort as the highest value is the true good. And then any sacrifices made to this end are worthwhile. Um, and there are people alongside of them who are able to use this to their own advantage, right? That seek to, that speak the language um, and slither like snakes around these institutions, siphoning off funds, embarrassing their opponents, uh, and bettering themselves. I think that part of what Moldbug's general thesis omits, right, is this uh, is the distinction, right, between the, between the true believer and uh, the convict um, that populates these regimes. What it does take into account, however, um, is the, the the churn of the functionary how these functionaries can come and go once they're disillusioned. Living in a West Coast city, you often see people living there for, you know, up to five years, typically. They do a five-year stint in Los Angeles. They do a five-year stint in San Diego. They do a five-year stint in New York. They do a five-year stint in Seattle. They do a five-year stint in Denver, ad infinitum. Um, and then they become disillusioned with the political out- or with the real outcomes of their politics. They get what they ask for good and hard. You know, this causes them to leave immediately, right? But the cathedral has self-promoting and self-perpetuating, right? There's always someone who's willing to take this place. There's always someone willing to step in and continue marching down the uh, the long left-leaning path, right? Cthulhu marches leftward and is made of many, many faces. Uh, I do believe it's, you know, should be pointed out that, in my opinion, the longest tenured people in these movements are not always the true believers, but, but the convicts, uh, the people who are able to ingratiate themselves at the highest level, enrich themselves, and find great material comforts in espousing and enacting um, left-leaning policies. What do you mean by, do you say convicts? What do you mean by convicts? Uh, this phrase comes from Dostoevsky's Demons. Fredor the Convict is a fashionable representation of a felon who believes in socialism. He proudly espouses and voices his support for socialist ideologies insofar as it allows him to steal, uh, rape, and burn the convict is you know has has a partner right um you know fredor the convict was licensed out by someone who um was a third-rate intellectual didn't really believe in any of it and was solely using the ideology to you know better himself right and better his status right um and in fact was committing far more dangerous actions than fredor the convict was but the idea of the convict is someone Again, who is solely wearing the clothes of an ideology in order to better himself or, at a worse point, you know, satiate his base desires. You can think of some of the, uh, the normal activists or the uh, pedophile apologists who wear, 
you know, leftist ideology as a way to increase their access to children. Um, they say that it's for equal rights and whatever, but really it's to satisfy sexual perversion, right? Um, the convict class. I guess one question that comes up for me there is, uh, and this is, um, you know, also if we talk about how, you know, Moldbug is, I guess, 50, this writing is 15 years old now, and it has anything changed? There's this question of, has, um, has the true belief of progressives gotten more cynical? And has it been replaced by a lot more people who really don't believe in anything and are just nihilists um, who are just kind of playing the procedural game. Um, yeah. And that's ahead. hard to determine, right? Like one thing that I wanted to speak about earlier uh, in Astral's opening monologue was the discussion of things taking a long time in the eighties and nineties, right? The progression of punk rock as an underground scene in the sixties and seventies to the mainstream in the 80s, to passe in the 90s, and to dead in the 2000s, right? I think that um, with the spread of information, that the, the rapidity of it, the exponential growth of exposure of individuals to information, I think that this happens much, much quicker. I, that, is, that is something I also disagree with Moldbug on. I think that we could be looking at a timeline of a decade at longest um, to five years optimistically to you know, um, an opportunity, a sizable opportunity, uh, for the right wing. Uh, so to that point, Th that's an excellent point that that's a really good point. It, the internet definitely speeds this up. I, I, I should have factored that in. Yeah, you're right. And so, uh, you know, to your point, Appalachian, right? Like, I think that when we're discussing the cynical, like, uh, cynical expressions of ideology for bettering of self, right? There are myriad opportunities for people to do that. You think about the demon-faced Democrat activist, right? Um, I know we all know who I'm talking about, who uh, has sizable outlays from the DNC and from the Biden administration to make, you know, agitprop on TikTok, um, tongue-wagging, you know, four whites of eyes exposed, you know, absolutely demonically possessed, right? It's hard to determine whether or not that he believes it. And it's hard to determine whether the people that he's inspired believe it, right? Um, but you combine the access to propaganda manufacture, the instant clout that you can gain from doing this, right, through, um, you know, algorithmic, uh, algorithmic spread, and the general lowering of the IQ of the American population, right? Like you don't necessarily have to have compelling propagandistic argument. You can have a good face that plays on some, you know, the predisposition of the people. Um, and you can wear the clothes of certain ideologies for, for a lot better class. So it's hard to determine. I, 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 I tend, I want to agree that there are less true believers now than ever before, but you know, with lower IQ, they might be convinced easier, right? Like it's a, uh, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think that that's a proper angle to attack. I think it's an interesting question. However, um, those are my initial thoughts. So this is a great point. Um, I, I thought that's what you meant by the criminal, but I wanted to make sure. However, I did not know it was a theme in demons because it's, I haven't read that yet. I really need to get to that. So that's really, really interesting that that's in that book. Uh, I look forward to reading that. The first person that comes to mind is, of course, Sam Brinton, who was the 
hideous cross-dressing, like, what was he, like, the nuclear waste disposal czar in America or something like that. And I even remember one time he was talking and he said something about, like, feeling passionate about nuclear waste disposal. And, you know, he spent a lot of time in school learning about it. So he was really happy to have the position that he had. And I just remember looking at him and being like, yeah, but your sexual fetish is far more important to you than that, of course. Like, no one thinks, no one believes that you feel passionate about nuclear waste disposal. It's obvious bullshit. Uh, And then he gets caught stealing (laughs) African women's dresses at the airport, which is fucking hilarious. But, of course, the joke is on America. Uh, He's the perfect example of what Grill is talking about. Now, I agree i i think that this reinforces the way moldbug says the cathedral works um it's slightly different i don't want to say it's different but it's not exactly what he talks about in the book but it's the same thing in that uh i mentioned before Lippman talks about how we need to create this class and that this class becomes the uh, the journalists and their job. I, I, I went over this. I, I won't reiterate it. But Chomsky, the thing about the thing that Mold, one of the things that Moldbug rejects about Chomsky's argument is that Chomsky's argument says that this journalist class is basically doing the work of some third party. And the third party is the corporations or the State Department or something like that. And Chomsky says, you know, some like five, ten percent of journalists are like actual journalists who actually care about like the hard hitting news story and like finding the truth. They're like actual truth seekers. And then 90 percent of them are just ideologues. And uh, Moldbug specifically says, like, what if what if there is no third party that the journalists are working for? Like, what if the journalists are only working for themselves? But instead of looking to report the truth, they're looking to, like, push their own ideology. And their own ideology is progressivism. Uh, So that's why examples like lady, the lady who was working on marketing for Bud Light, who put Dylan Mulvaney in there, and why Sam Brinton are actually, even though they have details about them that are far outside the scope, not the scope, but the far outside the, the, the text of the open letter. Uh, they're still exactly the type of people that Moldbug is talking about. Because the woman, the, the marketing woman, any idiot would have known that that was going to lose you $5 billion at Bud Light. Any idiot would have known that. But because she is a true believer in the progressive ideology and the progressive zeitgeist, the progressive Overton window today now is directly over like child molesting, you know, men in dresses with five o'clock shadows and completely bald heads. That is just the the defa- the the default person that she's going to use in her marketing campaign, right? Because she is a dyed in the wool progressive ideologue. Sam Brinton, because progressivism like perpetuates his like disgusting fetish. Uh, and allows him to be this, like, criminal, as Grill calls him, who wants access to children or, you know, African immigrant, the dresses of African immigrants. Like, of course, they have this reciprocal relationship where, of course, he wants to work for the White House because the White House is the locus of the power that is, like, granting him, like, the freedom 
to do this bullshit. And of course they want him to work with them because he is of course like the 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 pinnacle of the ideologue today, working today. These are the type of people that run the cathedral. Now, I put an Edward Snowden uh, tweet up here because I think, I mean, I don't know for sure, and I feel like if you ask Moldbug this, he wouldn't even give you a straight answer. But everything I've read from him and everything I've heard from him, I think that he thinks that the cathedral is an institution unto itself and that um, that that the way I just characterize it and the way he characterizes it in the book is pretty much like purely how the cathedral functions. And there's no more to the story. And I've certainly... There's there's some neo-reactionary accounts on Twitter who I think actually know this stuff way better than I do. They've been following it much longer. Um, I don't want to speak for any of them, so I'm not going to name any of their names. But you see them. They're out there, and they don't necessarily reference Moldbug all the time. But the way they tweet and the way they like understand politics and the way they understand like uh, uh, the the liberal order of the day is through a neo reactionary lens. And these people like certainly talk about this as if it's this closed system, this closed feedback loop of self perpetuating and re entrenchment, constant re entrenchment of their own power. Um, and that is an element of it. Uh, but I, I definitely think that they are doing the work of some other superstructure that exists outside of them that kind of uses them to manipulate public, not just public opinion, but to manipulate like to manipulate like uh, uh, culture, I guess, to just say to say it in the broadest terms possible, to manipulate culture in such a way that they're able to get their schemes passed through. Uh, a really good example of this is the guy in the White House whose name is Anthony, not Anthony, uh, I'll look his name up. I keep, I'll look his name up. He's a black guy. He's the head of, I think, the Department of Defense right now. And one of the main things he has done is like purge the military of like far right people. They're like, he, he like implemented this policy of like, going through the military and anybody who like posted on their social media, anything that they consider far right, they're like purging them, like stripping them of their pensions and shit like that. That's like what a sycophant is. Right. And people are like, no, there is no nefarious overarching plan. There is no outside entity that's pulling the strings. That's making this guy do this. He's doing it because this is what he really believes. And while I think it's true, that he does really believe these things. Of course he really believes these things because he's the exact type of person that these far-right people that he's trying to get rid of are trying to prevent from having power. So by giving him power, the the, the institutions in the country um, are like eliminating their enemies and re-entrenching their own power because they're putting somebody who's just, and this is bio-Leninism, who's like biologically already predisposed to reinforcing their uh, things that benefit them. Because by doing so, he himself is enfranchised and he himself is put in a position of power. So it's like a political 
uh, progressive politics is like baked into this guy's biology or it's baked into Sam Brinton's, uh, you know, not biology because I don't know. I don't really understand it. I don't know if it's biological that he is the way he is or just because he's got a mental illness, but it's like baked into the fabric of who he is. He doesn't even need to be indoctrinated into the progressive thought. It's like normal people that need to be indoctrinated. So while everything's falling apart, right? Well, while, while, while everything's falling apart, the military is falling apart, the mili- all the capable people are being kicked out of the military and it's being uh, run, overrun by women who like physically are incapable of like doing the things and are constantly lobbying like rape uh, uh, lawsuits against the military, which is like bureaucracy that just grinds everything to a halt. Meanwhile, uh, we're sending $40, billions of do- $40 billion and, and weapons to Ukraine every three months. And they're defending our interests like overseas against uh, the regime's enemy, which is Russia. So you can't say these things are like a closed system that work purely independently as its own entity to do nothing more than re-entrench itself and perpetuate itself and grow itself as its own organism. They are There is all sorts of inputs and outputs and it definitely works within a superstructure which is why i put the edward snowden quote up there because the edward snowden quote is a cia operative or a former cia guy telling the media how the cia directly intervenes with the press and directly manipulates stories to make them look in a way that's favorable to them and helps them uh accomplish their own goals and get public opinion on their side, which of course public opinion being on their side means uh, voting for things that give them money. Uh, So, so I personally think that this shows that Moldbug's concept of cathedral while very sound and based wholly in reality and a much better analysis than Noam Chomsky's, and, and, and by the way, Noam Chomsky's is worth bringing up, not because I agree with him. I don't agree with him. I disagree strongly with him. But the thing about Noam Chomsky that you have to understand is that his analysis of the media is what everyone believed for decades. Like if you were going to critique the media, you were either going to directly quote and cite Noam Chomsky or you were going to regurgitate some sort of vaguely... Uh, Marxist analysis of the media that Chomsky is the one who popularized. So as far as I understand it, as far as I'm concerned, Moldbug brought the only real comprehensive uh, kind of refutation to Moldbug's critique of the media. And even though I don't think either one of them is completely, totally comprehensive... Uh, I think Moldbugs is much closer to the reality um, than Chomsky's, but I still, and I don't quite understand why, but, you know, a lot of people on the right, not just Moldbug, a lot of people on the right, I don't get why they reject this. They don't really like to talk about uh, intelligence agencies actively, covertly, manipulating public opinion, manipulating cultural movements, manipulating uh, the media directly with a heavy hand. Like, 
direct propaganda. You know, for some reason, I don't understand it really, but that critique has been relegated basically to the far left that pretty much doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it used to exist, and they used to be the only people talking about it until Alex Jones came along. And then Alex Jones, I would say, is probably like the flip side of the Moldbug coin uh, for the media. Whereas I don't know why Americans have to always talk with such extremes. But, you know, you got Moldbug saying there is no conspiracy ever. And um, Jones saying, like, literally everything is not just conspiracy. It's like a fucking false flag. It's like the things the media reports, they're not just like conspiracies. They're actually like staged events, you know, which is like the farthest to the other side of the spectrum as you could possibly be. And I don't really know why people, I guess because it doesn't, I don't know, maybe it doesn't like garner enough like clicks uh, to to not be extreme, to say it's like one or the other. You know, I don't know. But but certainly Moldbug's cathedral is that it's purely for re-entrenchment of power. Um, and I actually would like to read a quote. I'm going to let other people come in because I'm going on too long now. Um, but, that, but it reinforces my argument that that's what Moldbug says the cathedral is. And I'm also going to re- read from the Snowden tweet, but... Uh, Adrian's had his hand up, and then Bones just joined us. And anybody else wants to talk, please uh, put your hands up. Certainly. I'm uh, very happy that the bio-Leninism topic came up because uh, that pretty much covers this idea of, like, we're talking about these three types that exist within the cathedral. uh, You mentioned two, but I I would argue there has to be a third. We have your your criminal element. These are people that are motivated by self-interest. But it's self-interest. It's not necessarily politically motivated. It's stuff like um, like uh, sexual uh, compulsions, fetishes, a desire for criminality. These are people that will leverage any system of power that they can have to get what they want. And right now they can rightly see that there's institutions that will give them a pathway to accomplish those things, whether they're criminals or street crime guys or, or we were talking about this uh, nuclear, you know, got like all of these people. Right. They're able to either satisfy their fetish or their compulsion for criminality, whatever it is they have to do through systems of power that exist because there are perverse incentives built into the system. Then you have your true ideologues like this woman from uh, Budweiser, from Anheuser-Busch. These are people are also, uh, was it Secretary of Defense, right? These are people that have vested self-interest because they truly believe that they're doing the right thing for the right political reasons. And they're, they're distinct from the criminal element because they're... They have the right philosophical ideas for the power structure. Then I would argue there there also is a third. And these are people that are, I wouldn't necessarily call them craven social climbers. They're the people that actually have power itself. To them, power or, or I would say ideology is totally agnostic. They leverage whatever ideology is there for their own benefit. These are the people that will put someone like that secretary of defense in power because they know he's going to erode the existing power structure and he's going to work in his own self-motivated way. To yeah, make them yeah. More so, power. It, it was Lloyd Austin, by the way. I just That's had to jump one, in. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I brain farted his name. Lloyd Austin. Sorry about that. Go, continue. You're, nope. This is great. This is super great. No problem. Uh, and then they also, these the, the same powerful people, this, this third type, the ones that actually hold it, will also put someone like Sam Britton in because they know that despite the fact that he would have accomplished nothing if not for the perverse incentive structure that's there to get him there, 
he is a useful idiot, much in the same way as the useful idiots of communism and memorial, but not necessarily, this isn't necessarily communism, this is something different. But they know to put someone like that there because he's always going to act on his fetishes and he's always going to act to erode their enemies by behaving the way that he will, that he is predictable, the same way that the Secretary of Defense is. You can go ahead, Bones. Good evening, Bones. Yes. Maybe he's got a mic problem? I don't know. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, hello. I just wanted to say thank you to Astral. Thank you to Astral, and, and um, thank you because... That brought up a point that I wanted to talk about, which is um, something that I think is really paradoxical that I kind of in my my mind call like eating the sausage that you make, referring to that term of, you know, knowing how the sausage gets made. And I think it's very interesting that professions really truly believe what they do. So journalists believe journalism and I know some journalists that have been journalists for like 20 or plus years and every single morning they get up and they read either online or on paper still the New York Times and the Washington Post and just for some balance you know the the Wall Street Journal um, and they believe it they believe what they read and advertisers believe advertising Physicians and other scientists, science-adjacent professions believe peer-reviewed journals. And people tend to believe whatever propaganda their own organizations put out. And I've always found that very strange because when you really talk to people that are doing the research, and I have um, in medicine, for example, some of it is legit, but a whole lot of it, a whole lot of it is not legit. Um you'll see people, the vast majority of people that just have to do some research project to get their next level up of degree, whether it's master's or whatever, they'll do some very, very easy survey. You know, they'll send out a survey to people, explain your level of stress, you know, or, or, or whatever. Um, and so every single person that is a part of this process understands that there's, that most of it is bullshit but they believe it anyway. And I, I just think that's really strange. Um, and to me, that kind of strikes at the psychology of why the cathedral is self-perpetuating without top-down, directed influence. Um, and part of it could be answered by the question that, or by, or by the by the, you know, saying that, people are not going to go against what's in their own self-interest. You know, it's, you're not going to become skeptical of your livelihood. But I don't know. I, I think it's maybe even more than that, even more than just the money influence, but the identity of what your profession is. Um, I thought about recently, you know, when it came to medicine and science, that if you take away, you know, believing in quote unquote, the science, it's like you're, you're driving it high speed down a road that doesn't have any lines on it and you're trying to take some turns and there's no road signs and you don't know where you're going and you have to start figuring things out again from first principles. It's very, very scary. And 
you know, it, it, it could be potentially much more dangerous than just kind of going along with whatever has worked so far, even if deep down you, you kind of know that a lot of it is false. Um, so, I don't know. I was wondering what everyone else thinks well, about that. Yeah, he, he, he uses like what I think is one of the most powerful, not, not, not powerful examples, but one of the best examples, uh, prescient examples. I think it's in the gentle introduction, though. Uh, but it's better than any any example he gives in this book, so I'm going to use this one, where he says that if you're a scientist and you all you want to do is research, uh, you you live on grants. Like you have to get a, you have to propose some research you want to do, apply to get a grant, receive the grant, do the research, reach the conclusion, publish it, and then start it all over again. So he says if you're a climate scientist. The only way you're going to get that money is if you're doing research that like reinforces the concept of global warming. That like you're going to get research money, grant money to a study uh, that's going to reinforce like the progressive ideology. Right. So in this book and I was looking for the passage, I have it highlighted, but I can't find it now. Um, I had it, though, but he says something to the effect of like. If you knew somebody like, let's say you knew a young person in college who is like, what should I major in so that I can get a job? But instead of asking, what should I major in so that I could get a job? They ask you, which political party should I join to get a job? You would tell them the progressive party, because if you get out of college and you have progressive politics and you want to get into, say, journalism or get into, say, uh, 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 university professorship, you know, if you have progressive politics, you're more likely to get that job. Um, so, I mean, I could repeat this ad infinitum. He gives many examples. Everybody kind of understands that. But this is why people believe the things that they believe. Because even if you are, say, a doctor who disagrees with this thing, these things, say you're a surgeon, right? You or, 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 or some sort of interventionist, right? A doctor who makes interventions. Because if you're like a primary care doctor, you just make money by the number of patients you see. So it doesn't really matter. But if you're a specialist, you make money based on the number of interventions that you do. So like an orthopedic doctor who does surgery on people's joints and backs, when they see people with back pain and shoulder pain, they're like they are going to suggest doing surgery because if everybody comes in and they say you don't need surgery, they're not going to make any money. Um, so if you apply this concept to like education or to journalism, this is how the cathedral perpetuates itself in the same way. But you can, the thing is, is you can be a doctor and like reject mainstream ideology and be as far right as you want. As long as you like perform your doctorly duties, it doesn't matter. But if you're a journalist or a politician or 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 a uh, a uh, uh, professor, these beliefs—that's why that's the cathedral, and doctors aren't the cathedral. You know what I'm saying? Like you would have to go way outside of like the, your job duties to start preaching right-wing politics as a doctor. Now you could like. You could easily refuse to give people a COVID vaccine or you could easily refuse to believe any of the COVID bullshit and still be a lucrative doctor. But you can't be a lucrative journalist and like push, you know, fascist ideology through your work, through the work itself. 
you will lose your job instantly. You know, so it's like it's really simple. It's really cut and dry. It, it, there's there's almost like nothing even worth talking about now. You know what I'm saying? But to be honest with you, in my opinion, if you disagree with me, I'd like to hear this. But in my opinion, like in 2023, like faith in media institutions is completely shattered. Like there was a point in time, 2007, when mold, that's why Moldbug's so important and why Moldbug's such a visionary. Back then, like almost nobody fully rejected like the media as like an edifice. The only people who did were on the fringes, like me, who was watching Alex Jones in like 2004. Um, and was reading people like Robert Anton Wilson, who was like a drug addled, you know, Bay Area fucking anarchist who believed in like Aliester Crowley. Those were the only people who told you that there was one political party in America. There was, a, but they all came across like completely batshit, wingnut, crazy people, and half of them were. Moldbug was like the only reasonable person who came along and like started pushing all this stuff. And now everybody believes it. Now, you're a ridiculous brainwashed, you know, liberal, I guess, if you believe this. Like, the average person now knows that all this is bullshit. Uh, and that's why we're talking about Moldbug today. Go ahead, Grill. Uh, actually, Taurus. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, Grill, can I throw Taurus. something in there? Yeah, because, throw it in, um, Taurus. Yeah, thank you. So, um, I, yeah, I, Astro, I agree with you, but. What I would add is that what people the 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 dominant um, frame for this uh, you know this uh, growing suspicion of the media and stuff is this kind of like you know Eric Weinstein style um, nostalgia for um, you know mid century. Um, uh, respectable journalism and you know well so like here's a black pill for you what what if over the next 10 years we see you know increasing entropy of this system and then there's a reform movement and then it becomes you know a little bit more restrained and a little bit more polite and it does basically whatever it needs to do to recapture its market and then that goes on for another 100 years you know like that's the kind of thing that could happen i think on and I'm not saying that I'm predicting that that will happen. I'm just saying that just be like, I wouldn't be too optimistic or that, that people are becoming suspicious because part of what you have happening is, you know, a lot of really old people in these industries because there's a failure to properly turn over and basically just engineering problems and like engineering problems can be solved. So you know, the cathedral could potentially solve this stuff or find a, um, find, find, refine its niche, uh, in that area and, and keep going. Uh, it can be extremely resilient. Well, um, my, my, I, I, I think I agree with you, like at the end of the day, but I disagree with you on the number of people. I think there's way less people who buy into any of this bullshit. I just think that the institutions, who exert control in America uh, have have really like fortified themselves in such a way that like the democratic processes that depend on the media are no longer like the thing that determines who's in power, uh, and they've 
sort of captured, I don't want to say they've captured the institutions, but they've captured the process so that like, it doesn't matter how unpopular they are. I, I, I definitely think there's like way too many millions of people who do buy it. But uh, I, I think the 2020 election was stolen. And I think that they're uh, going through the country, just actively dismantling everything for a reason. They're, they're actively Brazilifying America so that they can like be assured to remain in power as like the one party state. And of course the GOP is part of this, uh, which, which is not to like totally refute what you're saying Taurus, but my opinion is that public opinion isn't all on the same page, but it is against the regime. You know, it's just that the people who agree with it are so fervent and strident that like they're burning cities to the ground in order to uh, to keep themselves in place. Uh, more to say on that. It's not as simple as that, but we got to move on. Lots of hands. Um, Alvaro, I want to give you the mic first because you're the newest guy here. It's good to see you as a speaker. Hey, thanks for that, and, and thanks for holding. The, thanks for having this space. I think it it um, Molbok's denial or uh, well, his strict position that there's no group coordinating everything about and at the top of, of it all it, it can really be puzzling but uh, well i mean i think uh, at one time he he refers to this idea as a cope he says that we should not be thinking this way because it makes us think that it's going to be easy we just have to destroy the ring and that's it or for a more sumer approach you're, you just have to destroy like the big motorship and everything's going to come down at the same time and this is probably not the way he sees it and I think the explanation for, for, for this is based on his, like, libertarian past that's, uh, that he doesn't completely get rid of. And, I mean, there's things on there that you should get rid of because they're just correct. So if we think about spontaneous order, the idea that the market, uh, just by the incentives it places on people, doesn't really need anybody to be at the top, well... I think that the point that Moldebok is trying to make is that the system that is getting you these outcomes doesn't really need those people at the top. Like the incentives are there and everybody's just moving along. The machine is moving along. And even if they were to disappear tomorrow, it, it's, it's likely we wouldn't even notice. Uh, I think you, you, you alluded to this regarding, well, the doctors and everything. And, uh, well, for example, a doctor during COVID, he's not really looking out for when he's researching COVID, he's not really looking out for the best way to to treat his patients i mean some great doctors are going to be doing it the what he's looking out for is how he can practice without getting in uh, soon so he's just looking out for himself and, and that's he's just doing he's just going through the motions he's just doing every day he doesn't realize he's doing any power play he doesn't realize there's any politics going on uh, just to keep it short, I think the analogy that he gives uh, uh, regarding the cathedral, like this lake that gets uh, flooded with like peak residue or something, uh, it's, it's very apt because as we have it, the system that produces knowledge, that is universities and everything, has been uh, uh, infected with access to power. And once you have that access to power, the results are going to be there whether there's a person above or not. And, well, I do think that there's, it's obvious that there is some sort of coordination, like, 
making all the false flags and media events that are completely fake, but I don't think that they're actually, I mean, I'm not sure that you could say they're actually helping or that they're, their contributions to the actual like results that society is getting is is notable. I, I maybe the point is that once the machine has been set in motion, it just works by itself. Yeah, I think I think most people agree with that, and I like that you use the word incentivize because that's what I meant. Where I'm like, a lot of this becomes very very simple, um, but the reason why it needs to be explained or it needed to be explained in the past is because uh, these people uh, all try to present themselves. I mean, and when I say these people, I mean journalists, doctors, uh, climate scientists. They have this whole fucking facade of objectivity that they're these cool, detached intellectuals who are making decisions and carrying out their practice based only on uh, research and and reason and proof and evidence and journalists are only out there to give you an unbiased, fair and balanced, you know, uh, package of the truth. That window dressing is why this this analysis needs to be brought out because people buy it. People go to the doctor and think that doctor really cares about their health, and you know, a lot of times they do, but sometimes they don't. Uh, Sometimes what they're concerned with more is incentives and their incentive, you know, if your job is to report on the people in power, clearly the incentive is to favor the people in power. It should be the simplest thing in the world. Uh, but uh, of course it's not. Um, it's very hard for me to pick who should go first. Uh, I will assume the position. Uh, there you go, brother. Let me, uh, I want to do this because I, I want to address a couple of people's uh, points. Uh, Bones, uh, you spoke earlier about people presenting and uh, producing slapstick farcical research in order to progress their ways up the uh, ladder. That they understand that the research that they're producing is lackluster. They understand that other people around them are producing lackluster research. Um, and... Again, I think that uh, a hazing ritual is meant to be contextualized. I think the uh, that most modern upper echelon educational systems are meant to be hazing rituals, and are meant to and these hazing rituals are of course meant to be heavily contextualized. Anyone who has been involved in a fraternity or sorority understands that the things that they went through to join said fraternity or and uh, sorority are meant to be applied in context and not to be looked at on the face. Um, this is a binding ritual. This is something that is, is, you know, seeks to ingratiate themselves with their credentials, to instill within themselves a respect for their credentials, and to instill within them a respect for others with these credentials. Um, secondly, I would like to push back slightly against Astral's discussion about doctors not being able to produce right-wing thought. I think that this is a uh, a mode that was applicable in the up until really, um, up until really Obamacare, right? But since since the Obamacare mandate passed, since the you know vertical integration of the insurance industry with the hospital industry, with the primary care industry, and with the umbrella corporations of healthcare as such, you know we saw uh, doctors who refused to go along with COVID, COVID protocols fired. Um, you know, dismantled. The nurses were at the, the forefront of this. Nurses who refused to intubate patients, who had 
let's say, a blood oxygen concentration of 85 for about 30 minutes, right? This is considered a warning, was considered a warning sign in 2019. And in 2020, this meant that you needed to be intubated uh, and heavily sedated throughout the duration of the intubation period, right? Um, we saw numerous times, you know, nurses and physicians both who insisted on other uh, treatment, other treatments, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, not even other treatments, but just saying, hey, this is a problem, right? Get, get fired out of their jobs if they were underneath the umbrella of healthcare, right? And as we see the constant pouring of money into massive healthcare conglomerates for both treatment, which, you know, by the way, I think that we have probably about $250 billion, if, uh, you know, maybe a little more, maybe a little bit less, that are still unallocated from the CARES Act that are going through HHS, that are going through uh, NIH, that are going through CDC, right? And this is money that can be used to further incentivize vertical integration, further incentivize regime compliance with, uh, let's call it healthcare equity positions, other things like that. So I, I do I do agree that at one point in time, in the very recent past, that this was something that you can get. And and maybe in your town, you have a physician that's not underneath an umbrella corporation. Maybe maybe you have a great primary healthcare physician who is independent, who can write you prescriptions without going through three bureaucrats that will oversee all that he does or all that she does, right? Um, but more and more, that's that's becoming, you know, not the case. You know, fourth and finally, um, the integration of messaging is is increasing at a pace I don't think any of us is ready for. I'm the, I know that myself, I'm not ready for the complete and total alignment of media messaging. It, it used to be um, during the Trump administration, Reuters or AP would print something. Then from Reuters and AP, you would have a little bit deeper understanding presented in the Times. And then everything else was going to be distilled downstream from that, right? But during the, the final year of the Trump administration, right, we had AFL-CIO senior executives meeting with, you know, thousands of members of the media on Zoom calls, right, enforcing breakout rooms where they would present the media message. You know, they would, you know, really, they really brought about extreme brutal fascism um, in our media industry, right? Um, they outlined what was going to be discussed. They outlined how to frame things. They outlined everything that was going to be pushed from both an editorial perspective and a news perspective. With ChatGPT and with the with the increasing alignment of a text production underneath a central node, you know this is going to rapidly increase. This is going to be you know the mechanisms by which the cathedral is able to solidify itself and impose itself on the unprepared mind is increasing uh, drastically, rapidly. Um, and the end, we just saw BuzzFeed get shut down, right? We should be prepared for massive layoffs in the news sphere, right? They, they understand that the role of a person to regurgitate what Reuters or what the AFL-CIO is saying, um, you know, you don't really need that many people, especially when you have a program that, if given the proper prompts, can do this. I would not be surprised if we see major news organizations out, you know, um, you know, outsource the vast majority of publication to OpenAI, um, to Microsoft, to the conglomerate. You know, and the alignment of media messaging that's going to come out of that is going to be sharp and distinct. I think that people's appetite for differing viewpoints has been solidified into either seeking a 
Fox News or be CNN. I think that the middle ground for the mass consumption um, has has vanished distinctly. Right. I think that, you know, the MSNBCs of the world will be no longer, even though that was already closely aligned with CNN. Um, so I think that is what. I, yeah, that is it. I know I addressed a lot of points there. No, that's a great point, and I made the point either last week or on Orange Show uh, that I think what we see now is like the logical evolution of the cathedral. That uh, that 